verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And we're going to continue to that today, and we're continuing in Exodus chapter 25. And this chapter in Exodus really easily divides into, uh, into four parts. Uh, there's an introduction to, uh, to building the tabernacle, and that's what all this is building up to, is, is we've come to the point now where we're looking at the, uh, <clears throat> the instructions and the building of the tabernacle. And the first section of Exodus 25 uh, talks about God's call for costly gifts in order to build the tabernacle. The second part of this chapter, verses 10 through 22, we get instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. The third part of the chapter is where we get instructions for the bread of presence. And the last part of the chapter is where we get instructions for the golden lampstand. And I want to cover some of these in, uh, in, in some detail. So uh, we're only going to look at the first two sections today, God's call for an offering and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in Exodus 24, God had confirmed his covenant with Israel, if you remember, in a, in a public worship service. And as we went through it, we saw that this included a call to worship. It included a confession of faith. It included the reading of God's word and even a, a celebration of communion. And this was all done in the glorious presence of God on the basis, if you remember, of a blood covenant. It was a complete worship service. I mean, virtually, really, the only thing that the Israelites did not do was take up an offering. And we see that this gets, uh, that this happens here in verse 25. You know, God had called Moses to go further up and further in to enter the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai. And Moses would spend the next 40 days on the mountaintop with God. He would receive two copies of the Ten Commandments. He would be responsible to teach those Ten Commandments to this covenant community. And now when God spoke to Moses up on the mountaintop, the first thing that he told Moses to do was to collect an offering. Collect an offering for the tabernacle, the holy sanctuary where God would dwell with his people. In Exodus 25, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, an offering from every man whose heart moves him, every man who's willing to give. You shall receive the, contrib the contribution for me. You know, an offering is something that we give to God. The offering that God called for here was an act of holy worship. And if you notice there, the offering was not uh, compulsory, but voluntary. And this is why it's called an offering in the first place. It's not something that God takes from us, but something that we freely give. Now, understand something. These people had been slaves. Nothing that they had done as slaves 
had been voluntary. And now comes time for them to do what they were made to do. They were not made to be slaves of Pharaoh. They were made to be servants of the living God. Yet their gift to the building of this place where they would meet with God and to fulfill the very function, the very reason for being, was to be voluntary. They were to give from willing hearts, voluntary and free. Think about this. What had happened? I mean, they had been saved by grace. God had rescued them from slavery. He had showered them with treasure. He had delivered them from their enemies. He had led them through the wilderness. He had provided water to drink and food to eat. He had given them his law and shown them his glory. He had provided atonement for their sins through the blood of his covenant. Out of the rich abundance of God's own grace, he had done everything necessary for their salvation. And when they reflected back on this, when they reflected back on what God had done, their hearts swelled with gratitude. They were compelled by grace to give something back to God. And I think that this example helps us know how to respond. You know, our response should be based on our experience of God's grace. And I think we need to think about this. Think about what God has done for us. What has God done for us? He's met our needs for food and shelter. He's given us his word. I mean, he's offered his son to be our savior. Ephesians says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This is the generosity of God's grace. I mean, we've been delivered from guilt. We've been delivered from hell. We have gone from being enemies of God to being his friends. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been delivered from the bondage of sin. And I mean, I could just keep going on. We have experienced God's power to meet our greatest need. And if God has done all this for us, the least we can do is offer back to him a portion of what we have. If we do this from the heart, from the center of our entire being, we are really offering our whole selves to God. You see, true worship, true worship is willing worship. Now, as we continue, it says, and, and this contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, uh, goat skins. Now, some translations here, uh, I've found some translations that say manatee, uh, porpoise, uh, goat skins. But one of the best translations that I've found calls this, this animal a dugong, which is a 
seal-like animal, similar to what we might think of as a manatee, but larger. Uh, it was really common among the coral rocks of the Red Sea. But it's, it's the hide of this animal was cured to provide a strong lever, leather. And that's really what the focus is on, is a strong, durable leather. Acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. Now, where did that gold and silver come from? Well, the gold, the silver, and the precious gems, this was the plunder that God provided at the expense of the Egyptians. Back in Exodus 12, it explains what happened. It said that as the, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, the Israelites acted on Moses' words and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor in the Egyptians' sight that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord had promised that when the children of Israel left Egypt, that the treasures of Egypt would go with them. And sure enough, for reasons that the Egyptians surely did not understand, they were moved to have incredible, incredible generosity and give precious things to the Israelites as they left. And so Israel left with riches such as gold, silver, bronze, and many other valuable items. The acacia wood, God had asked for that. Now wood, where does that come from? That comes from trees planted on the earth, trees that come from God. Cloth comes from the animals that God provided to the Israel. You see, there was nothing that they could bring that did not come from God to begin with. This had been a nation of slaves, a people without money or power. And unless God gave them something to bring, they would have nothing to offer. But out of the riches of his grace, he provided for them to give. And this list of items, it was for a very special project, the construction of a tabernacle, a portable structure, a giant tent that represented God's presence with his people. Exodus 25, 8 says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the first step in the construction was to take up this collection, the animal skins. They would be used for the tent and for the fence around it. Wood for the poles, fabric for the curtains, gemstones for the, for the priestly garments, precious metals for the holy objects that were used in worship. You know, this gold, the silver, this bronze, the colored fabrics, do you, the, the color that went into these fabrics was just about as precious as gold and silver and bronze. Then you had the fine linens. Even now, we, we think of, of Egyptian cotton as being some very fine, uh, fine material. 
the spices, the perfumes, the gemstones, these were not everyday items. They were treasures. The Israelites brought their finest and rarest possessions to build a sanctuary good enough for God, who always deserves our best. You see, this is another principle. Not only is true worship willing worship, but worship is costly. Now, not everyone had gold or bronze or fine linens or precious gems. But happily, some of these items that God needed were less expensive. The Israelites could bring olive oil for lighting of the sacred lamps. And God also accepted acacia wood. Now, acacia wood was common in this region, but it was noted for its dark hue, but especially for its incredible hardness and durability, as well as the lightness, which was perfect for building a portable structure. It was also sometimes referred to as the incorruptible wood. Because of its hardness, it made it last a very long time. And then there was something about, about that wood that was also very insect resistant, insect repellent built into the wood. And so if a poor man's heart, if a, if a family didn't have end up with the gold or fine jewels, if a poor man's heart prompted him to give, he could go out and cut down some of these trees. They could give goat hair or ram skins from their flock. And here's the key to this. The people who donated the acacia wood or the goat skins or the goat hair, they were as welcome to God as those who donated the gold or silver or gems. Everyone in Israel was invited to give. The important thing was for the people was to bring the most valuable thing that they had, whatever that happened to be. Worship is costly. And this was really an extraordinary opportunity for the people because God was building a home for his glory. The Israelites had a chance to participate. This, this, was, the, this was a high privilege of offering the gifts that would go into the tabernacle. Let me talk just a minute about the tabernacle, and I'll talk to it in a later message as well. But the tabernacle was going to be a portable sanctuary representing God's presence with his people. I mean, basically, it's a giant tent. And since the tabernacle in some ways would be similar to tents that they lived in, it was going to show how close God was. This was the blessing of the covenant. God was with his people and they were with their God. But at the same time, the tabernacle would be elaborate, so elaborate that it would remind them that God was separated from them by his holy majesty. And there are two names that God gave this structure. It was called a sanctuary, a holy place, or literally sanctuary means a separated place a place set apart for sacred use. God's dwelling was set apart from the community to show that he is holy. 
but it was also called a tabernacle, a dwelling place. Now, this doesn't mean that God lived within the four walls of the tent. He doesn't have physical dimensions. God is infinite, and nothing, not even the universe can contain him. God said this through Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? And what place could be my home? But notice the purpose of the tabernacle here in verse eight. It was so that God may dwell in the midst of his people. The point is fellowship with God. So the goal of worship is fellowship with the living God. The purposes for God's, the purpose for God's ordinances concerning worship was so that the people would understand the goal of God's covenant was that they would be his people and he would be their God. You see, God promised to be, to be present with his people not for his benefit, but for theirs. And to make his presence be known, he told them to build a tabernacle. So the Israelites were called to the holy task of building a dwelling place for God. And the first thing they did was bring their offerings. Now, a building always starts with a plan, and the tabernacle was no exception. And so God said to Moses, this is in verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. If Moses was going to build something for God, it had to be done right, down to the last detail. So God showed Moses his plans. And, and if you've seen pictures of what the ark and the whole tabernacle look like, they are very detailed. And this the the, when the verse talks about the pattern of the tabernacle, it really suggests that Moses saw something like a three-dimensional model. God revealed some type of prototype for the tabernacle so Moses could build the full-scale version of it. And as we read on through Exodus 25, we find that the next thing that it talks about in verse 10 is the first piece of furniture. And the first piece of furniture that God told Moses to build was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, wait a minute. Why did the Ark come first? When we build a house, we build the house first, then we go out and find all the furniture to go in it. But why did the ark come first? And out of all of the things that went inside the tabernacle, why begin with the ark? Why start with a piece of furniture rather than the building itself? Well, the answer here is that the ark of the covenant was the most important thing in the entire tabernacle. If there was no ark, there would be no need for a tabernacle. The ark was the exact place where God descended to dwell with his people. The very center of God's presence was the ark of the covenant, located in the holy of holies, the innermost section, the innermost tent 
in that tabernacle. And by starting with the ark, God was working from the inside out, putting first things first, beginning with the holy place for his dwelling. And God not only told Moses what to build, but told him how to build it. He said, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half shall be its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Now, basically, the ark of the covenant was a plain wooden box that, as scripture says here, measured two and a half by one and a half by one and a half cubits. Now, a cubit was a general unit of measure in the ancient world. And a cubit in the ancient world was the distance from a man's elbow to the tip of his fingers. And of course, it varied from person to person, but it would be somewhere between 15 and 20 inches. And so the ark was really a rectangular box, roughly 45 inches long, 27 inches wide and 27 inches high. You know, just, you know, that's rough dimensions of what it would have been like. Uh, and although the Ark's basic design was simple, it had ornamentation on it. There was molding on the top. The whole Ark was covered with gold fit for the king, pure gold, refined to remove any impurities. Uh, it was the Ark, this, the acacia wood was likely covered with thick golden plates that were nailed or secured in place to the wood. And on the bottom of the ark, four feet to keep the ark from resting directly on the ground. Gold rings soldered and secured to these feet. The rings were for the poles to move the ark. So whenever the Israelites were on the move, the priest lifted up the poles and carried the ark. And it says these poles were never to be removed. I mean, this seems like a minor detail. But like all the details surrounding the tabernacle, it was important. Some of the other furnishings had also had carrion poles, but only the ones for the ark were permanent. And the reason was simple. To touch the ark was to die. Remember, the ark represented the holy presence of God. It was sacred. It was sacred because it was the place where God was. And in order to teach his people to revere his majesty, God had designated the ark as the special place of his earthly presence. Therefore, it was not to be touched. When it needed to be moved, the priest we're supposed to use the poles being very careful not to touch the ark. So the poles needed to stay in place at all times. Now to see how serious God was with these regulations, 
All you have to do is remember what happened when King David decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Rather than carrying it properly on their shoulders, the priest decided to load the ark onto an ox cart. And scripture says, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah the priest reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the ox had stumbled and he was afraid the ark was going to fall. But the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. The shocking story of Uzzah's of his sudden death shows us how holy the ark was. And it teaches us not to treat the holy things of God as trivial. We must be very careful not to treat holy things carelessly. We are in the presence of God. We should honor his name. We should hear his word. We should revere his worship. And we should also remember that we ourselves are called to be holy. The Bible says, don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The principle here is that by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, our bodies have become holy sanctuaries, tabernacles for God. To use our bodies for any sinful purpose is really to desecrate God's holy presence within us. Now, after giving instructions on what the ark should be like, God tells Moses that, well, there's something that goes inside the ark, and there's something that goes on top of it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony, the tablets, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let me talk about cherubim just a minute. Do you realize that cherubim are special angels? They're mentioned almost 100 times in the Old Testament. 
Now, they're first mentioned in Genesis 3, when God stationed angels, cherubim, to guard the way to the tree of life. And unlike some other angels, cherubim are not messengers, but they remain, really, most of the time, they remain in God's presence to deny access by anything unholy. You could think of them as the palace guards for the king of kings, guardians of the sacred, th guardians and throne attendants of the almighty. And it's strange today to me that cherubs are usually depicted as these chubby little creatures with jolly faces, with tiny little wings. But that is not the way the Bible portrays them. Cherubim are serious angels. And that's the way they should be. That's appropriate for supernatural beings who live in the holy presence of God. Listen to what Ezekiel described. Listen to how Ezekiel described them. I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The form of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They had a human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of the calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. The form of each of their faces was that of a man, and on each of the four, they had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. That is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that of another two wings and two wings covering its body. The form of the living creatures was like the appearance of burning coals, of fire and torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. lightning. And later on, Ezekiel says, these were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel. And I recognized that they were cherubim. So that doesn't sound anything like the depiction of the cherub angels that we see on greeting cards. Well, Ezekiel's vision helps us understand the Ark of the Covenant. If heaven were to open up so that we could see God on his glorious throne today, I imagine that we would see him enthroned above cherubim. In the Psalms, it says, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. King Hezekiah said, uh, he said, the Lord God of Israel, who was enthroned above the cherubim, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. This is one of God's holy titles. He is the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim. So understand that this means that the Ark of the Covenant, it was an earthly symbol 
of a heavenly reality. The cherubim on the ark represented the burning angels beneath God's throne. And above these cherubim was the holy presence of God. I think no doubt this probably explains why the cherubim lowered their gaze, looking down at the ark rather than up at God. They were bowing in God's presence to worship him with reverence and with awe. And the space above the cherubim was empty. God did not tell Moses to make any representation of a divine being because any such representation would have been a graven image, an idol of a false god. The space above the cherubim was left empty only to be filled with the living presence of God. Now, there was something under the cherubim. Inside the ark itself, Moses put the testimony. That is, the two tablets containing the words of the Ten Commandments. So the ark held the terms of God's relationship with Israel. And in effect, these tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, were placed under God's feet. If the top of the ark was God's throne, then the ark itself was God's footstool. And Bible sometimes describes it this way. When the people went up to worship God in Jerusalem, they sang a song, let us go up to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord, come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. So this is where Moses put the covenant in the footstool of God. So the covenant, the Ten Commandments, could always remain in God's presence. But there was one problem. God was above the ark, enthroned above the cherubim. You've got that picture. The law was under his feet, written in stone. But God's people were not able to keep the terms of the covenant. They were not able to keep that agreement, not perfectly, as God demanded. Nowhere near what God required. The more we know about the Israelites, the more we get to know them, the more we see how they completely broke God's laws. They were the kind of the people who liked to serve other gods. They liked to worship idols made with their own hands. They forgot the Sabbath. They took things that did not belong to them, and they generally broke the commandments of God. And so the law of God here in this ark, well, it demanded death of the sinner. You see, the ark itself, it contained the law. And the law had been broken by Israel. And that placed them under condemnation and the sentence of death. Therefore, Understand what was in the ark could not save them. It could only condemn them. The law was there in the ark and it condemned their sin. And God was right there on top of it. 
And yes, when it came to the law, the children of Israel were very aware that they were responsible for keeping the law, for being holy. They knew the covenant. But remember, God had also covenanted to do something. He had promised he would bless them abundantly if they obeyed his law. He also promised that he would judge them righteously if they disobeyed the law. This is what made the ark so dangerous. The children of Israel were ultimately unfaithful to the covenant, but God was faithful to the covenant. I mean, this, this meant, understand, if they were to meet up with God, there would be a massive collision, a tidal wave of wrath was sure to follow. The ark by itself was a throne of judgment, condemning the sinner, demanding his death and eternal banishment from the presence of God. And this helps us to understand the next piece of the ark. Oh, what, and it's so wonderful. The mercy seat. The lid to the ark was so important. In some ways, the most important part of the ark. I mean, some modern translations call it an atonement cover. Other versions call it the mercy seat. Martin Luther used this term, and it was really picked up by William Tyndale when he translated the Bible into English. And let me explain that here the word seat does not mean some kind of a chair or a throne. It means location, as in the seat of power. Thus, the mercy seat. That's the place where mercy is found, the mercy of forgiveness for sin. You see, the, the mercy seat, the cover, the mercy seat acted as a cover over the ark, over the, over the ark, and it sat snugly on that gold rim. It covered the very covenant that the children of Israel were so prone to break and which the Lord God was so holily committed to keeping. In other words, this covering, this atonement cover, this mercy seat was a means of protecting the covenant violators from God's just and holy condemnation. When you think about it that way, can you imagine what would happen if that covering was removed and there was nothing to shield us from God's holy and just condemnation? Well, actually, there's a, uh, 1 Samuel 6 tells us what happened. You see, in 1 Samuel, it tells of how the ark of the Lord had been captured by the Philistines, because they believed that in its presence, it would be the guarantee of blessing and protection. But that didn't work out too well for the Philistines, because what they got instead instead was tumors and mice infestations. So they decided they'd better send the ark back. They crafted a flatbed trailer. 
that was pulled by cows and they sent the ark on its merry way. And there was this little town, the town of Beth Shemesh, that the cows brought the ark to. And the population of this town, they rejoiced that, that uh, the ark had come back to Israel. They had a procession in the town. They offered sacrifices to God. I mean, they were no doubt thrilled that the Lord was with them. His throne had returned to them. They were elated, but they were also irreverent. In 1 Samuel, it says, simply and without drama, God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. <laughs> and the reaction after this happened, the reaction of these people was quite understandable. They were quick learners. At this point, they did ask the right question. Who is able to stand in the presence of this holy Lord God? This piece of furniture, this ark, was both glorious and dangerous. And yet, it was God's means to protect his people from his wrath. Let me explain. The mercy seat was used only once a year on the Day of Atonement. You know, the, the, the name, there's a Hebrew word called kapovreth. It means cover over sin, to make atonement. So the, so the ark's cover was used in making atonement for sin. First, the high priest offered a sacrifice for his own sins. The law said this, when Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. He is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the side of the mercy seat. Then he will sprinkle some of the blood with his finger between before the mercy seat on top of the mercy seat seven times. So when the high priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, this showed that sin was forgiven. Mercy had been granted. Atonement had been made. To put it another way, the people were covered. The sacrificial blood protected them from the wrath of God. And the location of where this blood was put was significant. Above it, was God in all his holiness. Underneath it was the law that exposed Israel's sin. And in between came the blood of the atoning sacrifice, the blood that covered transgressions and turned away wrath, reconciling the people to God. To God. You see, the blood, the blood on the ark provided safety from judgment. When God came down in all of his Shekinah glory in the cloud that covered the ark, the cloud over the ark, instead of seeing the law that Israel had broken, 
he saw the blood of atonement. And he did not exercise the judgment of death. He had promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is what the Bible means when you see the word propitiation. Parties that were separated have now become one. And what accomplished this reconciliation for Israel was the blood on the mercy seat. There's a commentator who says this. He says, it's not merely the presence of the atonement covering of the mercy seat, but it was only when payment for divine justice was regarded as sufficient to cover the sinner's debt that made the atonement actually effective. The beautiful atonement covering, the mercy seat on its own, was not sufficient. It had to be sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice. You know, we live in the, the age of the explosion of information, artificial intelligence. Uh, I don't know if many of you have heard of the name Ray Kurzweil, but he's really one of the world's leading inventors, thinkers, and futurists. And he believes that by around 2045, computers are going to be so developed that they're going to begin to think for themselves. They, he refers to this as the singularity. Uh, a lot of people that are call themselves futurists or singularitists believe that sooner or later, mankind is going to become immortal by the merging of man and machine. Uh, the author of one article I was reading said that uh, due to technology, death will lose its sting once and for all. <laughs> you know, though, in, in this age that we live in, where we think technology like that will happen, we got to ask the question, what relevance is this ancient story of people building a tent in the wilderness? What relevance does that have to us? Well, we may not, we may not be living in tents, but think about it. We're no different from the people at Mount Sinai. We are all sinners, and God is still holy. Man is a creature who needs the creator. Man is a sinner who faces an enormous problem. How can man be made right with God? Technology is not going to solve the sting of death. Mankind still faces the problem of the sting of death. And the tabernacle, and especially the Ark of the Covenant, it points us to all the answers we need about removing the sting of death. Because it ultimately points us to Christ, who enables God to dwell with man. 
you know, some people get turned off by all this talk of blood. Well, I take time to study this Old Old Testament ritual. What is the point, they say, of taking such a beautiful golden ark and splattering blood all over it? Well, the answer is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, there is no mercy unless there is blood on the mercy seat. God is up above, enthroned in his majesty. We are down below, breaking his law. If we are to be saved, something has to come between his perfect holiness and our unholy sin. And that, namely, is the blood of a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And this is precisely what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was offering himself as the perfect sacrifice acceptable to God. And it was a sacrifice in blood, his own blood. The Bible says this in Hebrews, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not one made of hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Our mercy seat, the place where atonement was made and where we can be reconciled to God, our mercy seat is the cross where Jesus shed his own blood for our sins. The New Testament describes this saving work of Christ. It often describes it in terms of the mercy seat. It said that Jesus was the merciful high priest who came to, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. It says that love consists of this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the word that the Bible uses in each of these verses refers specifically to a sacrifice poured out on the mercy seat. The cross of Christ is our mercy seat. It is the place where the blood of the atoning sacrifice reconciles us to God by coming between his holiness and our sin. The cross is the place where sinners find mercy. And Jesus told a wonderful story about a man who found mercy. This man was a sinner, a tax collector. He had swindled people out of their money. and He was such considered, he was such a notorious thief that he really didn't see that he had much hope that God would ever forgive him. 
but he was looking to God for grace and mercy. And so he went up to the temple to pray. He stood in the shadows, not even daring to look up to heaven, but he lowered his eyes and he kept hitting his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. Turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Now, to put it literally, he was saying, God, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. This man was probably standing not very far from the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and he understood what the Ark symbolized. He started his prayer with God, who was enthroned above in holiness. He ended his prayer with himself, the sinner who had broken God's law. And if there was any hope that he would find forgiveness, something needed to come in between. That something was the mercy of God granted on the basis of an atoning sacrifice. So he prayed, God, have mercy on me. Turn your wrath away from me, the sinner. And I think that would be a great way for each of us to start our days, to start every day by letting the very first words out of our mouths be, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I think beginning our days this way would put life in a whole new perspective. By doing this, we would be saying, I acknowledge who God is, my merciful Father in heaven, and I acknowledge who I am in relationship to him, a sinner who is under his mercy. Then once I've got God in his place and me in mine, I can talk to him about whatever else is on my mind and on my heart. But first, I need to come asking God to have mercy on me through Jesus Christ. Thank God there is mercy for sinners. Thank God for the blood that has been poured out on the mercy seat. The blood of Jesus to cover our sin. Let's pray. Lord, what a great privilege it is to gather and spend time in your word, to gain a greater understanding, to, to understand that it is because of the shed blood of Christ that we can meet with you in worship, just as the high priest did at the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you that our sins are covered and that we partake of your mercy instead of your holy judgment. Thank you, Father, that we find mercy at the cross. May the knowledge of that mercy compel us, Lord, to be grateful. And may we worship you with, the, with our entire being. We rejoice in this, Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Roger.
a lot to consider about the mercy of God. It is. Um, you know, you, this, this whole drama that um, you, you find in Scripture, I mean, there's the ark that God gave Noah precise instructions to build an ark, something never done before. Here God gives Moses precise instructions to do something that had never been done before. Um, and all of these things are all pointing towards something that we need to know about God. And this is the way God chose to reveal these various aspects of his character and who he is. I mean, how would we have ever known that God was merciful? How would we have ever known that God was faithful through the ages, unless through every age he had demonstrated something and then had fulfilled it. You know, we're such tangible material people. We, we look at things uh, and God used things to reveal thing, uh, his truth to us. Are there any, any um, responses that you'd like to share with Roger or the rest of the church about his message here this morning? Um, excuse me, I, I have a question. Okay. Uh, yes. First, thank you for uh, Roger's uh, share this morning. So um, I'm thinking if sometimes in the life still some bad things happen to people, either bad luck or people str struggle with something, is that because people have sin, sin or God or is a kind of punish from God? So That's even, a great question. <laughs> yeah, even some people really worship God and believe in God, um, but sometimes still some bad things happen. So how, how we can uh, look at this, this kind of thing? Well, one, one thing that I can point out is in when uh, when Jesus was walking on this earth, he healed a uh, uh, he healed someone, and and they had asked, was was this man's uh, uh, blindness was this because of his own sin, or was this because of his parents' sin? And Jesus said, "You don't understand. This was so that the glory can go to God." And so Jesus healed the blind man, but he was trying to explain that, that people uh, were trying to say uh, during this time that all the illnesses or everything must have been because the parents had done something wrong or this person had done something wrong. And Jesus was saying, this happened so that God could be glorified. And I think that's the way that we need to look at so many things is there may be a, something like how we deal with COVID-19, for example. I think that in so many ways, we have seen God's glory revealed in this past year in ways that we might not have ever noticed before. I think so many people may be drawn closer to God because certain things happen than they otherwise 
would. So I guess I'm saying not to necessarily look at it to say, well, this is God's judgment or this is God's punishment, but to say, this is an opportunity for me to learn from God. This is an opportunity for me to grow closer to God. You know, another way to think about it is that um, we are so accustomed to living in, in this world of God's grace towards people who believe and people who don't believe. I mean, uh, God is kind towards his enemies. And so we're accustomed to that kindness. And in, actual, in actuality, if, if God's kindness was not present, everything would be horrible. Everything in life because Satan would have his way and people would beat at each other's throats and there'd be uh, anger and murder and violence and strife and slander. And, and we know all these things exist. So what, what's really helped me is to think of God keeping me safe from all those things. He protects me. And that's why when Roger said, when you get up in the morning, say, uh, oh God, please show your mercy to me for I'm a sinner. Um, God's protection is what causes us to live a life that we enjoy. That, I mean, every good thing comes from God. Every good thing, the Bible tells us in James, comes from God. And so if we realize that, that God is holding back a thousand evil things that could be happening in every moment, then when we realize that when something bad happens to somebody who believes, it's actually... And everything he does towards us is good and kind. It's actually part of God's kindness to bring us to closer to him, that we will depend on him. But for people who re reject God and resist him, that same thing causes them to fall farther away from God. It's like the Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt. Um, he kept doing awful things and God used those things to separate himself, to separate himself from the kindness and the grace of God. I know this is very complex and it's difficult to grab. Um, I, I just think that God reveals himself in such powerful ways, so many ways, and I spoke about it last Sunday, that we never see his kindness towards us. And so when we start opening our eyes and we give God thanks for his kindness and we realize where we would be without the kindness of God, then it, it really helps me to see that. I don't believe people are punished. See, there's one thing is for a, per, a Christian, it's more like discipline. God corrects us. We think of punishment of that final judgment where we're actually punished for our, for people who are punished for their sin, but that's not for Christians. That's for people who turned away from God. They're punished for their sin. We are disciplined when we sin so that we might not sin again. Um, but this is going to take more, more talk, Jan, um, to walk, to, to walk through this. Um, but this is a great question and God, God has answers for that question. Um, it's hard to do it over zoom. <laughs> Bill, if I could add, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis, uh, entitled the problem of pain. Yeah which is very deep, but um, it's a really good read on understanding how God uses pain, even in the life of a believer. Yeah. Um, Cause we know that troubles will come. Yeah. What's the book name again, please? The problem of pain. 
by C.S. Lewis. All right, thank you. It'll take a lot of thinking and praying <laughs> to read through that, but it's a wonderful book. All right, okay, thank you. Yeah. There, there are many books. That's a good one. Uh, and, and Jan, that is a question that's going to come back, you know, multiple times. Yes. Um, it's just that the walk with the walk with Jesus is one of faith and trials come and evil comes and you, and you've got to realize God's disposition towards you. Uh, that's why I put those scriptures up earlier about God's delight in you. God takes delight in Sean and Jan. He takes delight in knowing you and having you be his child. And so when evil comes and bad things happen, we have to trust that God's using that to bring about his plan and his purposes. One thing I want to add is something might look evil now, but in the long term might not be evil. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. Yeah, and also, yeah, like Bill and Roger said, I think um, for all the good things we cannot take granted, it's because of God we have the, all the good things. But even the bad things happen sometimes, but yeah, maybe that is a good time to really look into our life, look into ourselves, and then get closer to God. Yeah, right. Bad things, <laughs> bad things happen for a number of reasons. Sometimes they happen because we sin. Sometimes they happen because other people sin, and we have to get the consequences. If somebody comes by your house and and uh, burns up your mailbox or destroys your car, bad things happen to us, but it's because of them. Mm -hmm. Some things happen because there's just sin in the world. The Bible says all the creation groans right now, and it groans because of sin. It groans because the sin corrupts everything, not just people, but animals, nature, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, all these things, all creation groans. So bad things happen because of sin and the world, because of everything falling apart because of sin. And sometimes bad things happen because um, Sometimes there's not an answer. Sometimes God doesn't tell us why. He just says, trust me. Hold on to me when you don't understand everything. You know, it's going to be made plain to you one day. Sometimes it happens because God is disciplining us. It's not that you've done anything wrong right now, but God is changing you from what you are now to someone that's going to be more useful to God's kingdom. And you will only see why when you get to the other side of it. Maybe you go through years of difficulty at work where you, you have people that are hard to work with, where, you, where you're praying every night, God, I need to get out of this job. I need something better, something that's going to be uh, more 
satisfying to me and won't put me through the kind of hard things that I'm going through right now. And maybe you go through it for years and you go, God, why don't you answer me? But then when it finally happens, and it will, then you look back on it and you say, God, I see I'm not the same person now that I was before. You've changed me and I didn't even know what was happening while it was going on. And again, sometimes we go through things and God is silent. He doesn't tell us why. He just says, trust me. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. And Jan, along with that, there's um, a verse in the book of John, John 16, 33. Mm -hmm. It says, I've told you these things so that in me, listen to that part. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's the where taking, um, taking heart and having peace in him. If we don't know him, then all of these things really can crush us, the things of the world. And that's what you're talking about, that people in the world, you know, they go through trouble, but they go through it alone. When you know Jesus, you don't go through trouble alone. He is with you. And he says that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And that's how you can come through and grow and grow in deeper trust and relationship with him. You're not alone. That's and, a real comfort. And, and Jan, sometimes even, even scripture talks about us going through a refinement process. Imagine uh, gold that has lots of impurities in it and you you heat up the gold to bring the impurities to the surface so you can remove those impurities so you get pure gold well god works in our lives the same way too he wants us he wants to remove impurities from our lives as well so and it's kind of think what greg was mentioning as well is that that we can go through struggles and hard times and those can be refining times where God is bringing to the surface of our lives the impurities that he wants to remove to make our lives uh, more pure and more holy. Okay. Yeah, got it. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. Great question, Jan. Oh, thank you. I'd like to share something that um, correlates with that. Yesterday, I um, went by the Etheridge's house to drop off some food for Blake and um, spent about 30 minutes talking with Bill Etheridge about Blake's accident. And, you know, I think most of us, our first thought is, why, God? Why? Why would you allow something like that? It was such a horrible accident. Um, but Bill just kept saying over and over, there were so many miracles in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like God provided so many different ways. Um, I mean, he just kept numbering them off. And even though Blake is going to be a long, 
healing process and he's in a lot of pain and there's a lot of you know hardships but at the same time they've really seen God's provision in so many ways that he was alive I mean when the rescue guy came he said he'd never seen someone sustain that type of injury and still be alive and the policeman who got there first was a believer and prayed with him. The rescue person who got there prayed with him. Um, the nurse at the ER was a believer and prayed with him. Um, Blake had apparently had talked with someone weeks earlier, had just hired someone who can kind of step in and help keep his business afloat. Um, he had trained with him for just two days. But I mean, it was like God has provided. Um, so even in the midst of this horrible, horrible pain and suffering, you can see that God is there. So, um, so Jan, we all struggle with those type questions, even as believers. You know, why why does this happen? But ultimately, you know, you can trust your heavenly Father. So. Thank you, Liz, for sharing. Yeah, thank you. It's also interesting that uh, one of the things that Blake said was not, why did this happen? But Lord, what do you want to do in my life through this? That was a comment that Blake made this past week. Yeah, yeah it can make people stronger and stronger. Let me give you another verse. Uh, this is in the book of James, first chapter, verses two, three, and four. You can read it later. Okay. James one, one two, three, and four. Okay. Because none of us likes to go through trials. We all want to live on easy street. But God has something better in plan for us. So we trust him. Um, but yeah, every don't think anybody on this call hasn't asked that question and still ask that same question. I mean, we all do. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Didn't make me feel better. Thank you. Well, Jesus, Jesus is going to really show you the precious nature of his mercy. Any other comments about the message? Roger, I, I appreciated what you said about, you know, the gold of the, of the mercy seat. And yet that wasn't enough. You know, there's the angels, there's the construction exactly like God had said, but that wasn't enough for us to be forgiven. It took the blood. And then, and then to think of the cross where God shows us his mercy that he would take the punishment that we deserve. That story never gets old. I'm going to sing that story for the rest of my life. I hope that each one of you do. Any other thoughts? I've never thought about the mercy seat I'd actually envisioned it being a type of seat, but being the place of power 
and that makes so much more sense. Mm. You you know the seat of power. Um, it was just all so rich. Every all the details that you brought into it, Roger. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was a great understanding, bet, a better understanding. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think I'd ever thought about the mercy seat being the protection from the wrath that was there in the ark and the protection from that wrath coming out. Um, I think I'd always thought of it as that was where the presence of the Lord was, not that that mercy seat was the, the covering, the protection from that wrath. And it and it makes it makes perfect sense, you know, that it was the mercy and then the blood. And that was such the picture it, it, that it was giving even at that time for the sacrifice that was going to be made um, to hold back the wrath of God from our lives, the sacrifice that Jesus made with the, the shedding of his blood. Exactly. So I, I just love, I mean, the, the, the story of God is from the beginning. <laughs> the story of his redemption is from the beginning. And um, it, it does, it just makes it so rich when we see the intricacies of the way that the Lord has woven that together throughout time. I, I just I, I don't I don't ever tire of that, like Bill, like you were saying, don't ever tire of it. No. Well, I'm sure there are situations in our lives right now where we want to call out to God for mercy, for His mercy. Can you think of one in your life? Some area where you know it's not right and you desire God to, I mean, mercy, mercy by definition is not what we deserve. Um, mercy is God's given by God's grace. It's, it's, uh, it's what God has for those who trust him. He is a merciful person. This place that Roger talked about is the seat of mercy. It's where the where God revealed his mercy to, to Israel. And God revealed his mercy to us, not only by that passage of scripture, but at the cross, he revealed his mercy. So is there some person in your life that you want to seek God's mercy for or some situation? There's a song I'd like for us to sing together um, because it, uh, it brings us to the mercy seat, the seat of God's mercy. So let's go there together as we, as we sing this song. Let's see. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. 
To thee I tell each prizing grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring us sweet relief for every pain I But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? For thou art only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, the prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and seek I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf? When I complain, no, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seated open still here let my soul retreat with humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet thy mercy seat is open still here let my soul retreat with humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Lord, here we are. Lord, we're not only under you, we're under those angels. We are under the mercy seat. We are under the law of God. We are there, Lord, at your feet. And Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy. So grateful, Lord, that your, your, your message has consistently and faithfully been that you are a compassionate God, gracious and full of mercy. That's who you are, Lord. That's the fundamental aspect of your character besides lord your holiness but every aspect lord of who you are comes across lord in these various things holiness compassion mercy justice righteousness love and lord because you are gracious towards those who have received faith in christ you forgive us of all of our sin and lord not only do you forgive us you discipline us that the, the remaining sin within us might rise to the surface and be scooped off, Lord, by your grace. Lord, thank you for your message of hope. Lord, we have hope because you are forgiving God. 
and you are at work within us. So Lord, the, the person or the place or the thing that we brought to your, your mercy seat this morning in our minds, whether it be a parent, a loved one, a daughter, a son, a cousin, a neighbor, a co-worker, Lord, we ask for your mercy. May it be for ourselves, Lord. Our anxious moments, our, our despair, our attitude, Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, we seek your mercy. We seek your healing. We seek your touch. And we, Lord, we pray for each one on this call and those who, who couldn't make the call this morning that your mercy might flow. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you, you gave us something that we could, because you were invisible, you gave something tangible that we can read about. And Lord, only the high priest could visit that, see that mercy seat. It was shielded from view. But they knew it was there, Father, because you had written about it in the word. And Lord, only the people there at, when Jesus was crucified actually saw him being crucified. But Lord, you have given us faithful witnesses who, who have told other faithful witnesses and passed this on from generation to generation. And Lord, this, this word now is crossing the globe so that every person might know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we might know who we are and our great need for a Savior. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we rejoice today in your faithfulness that you find delight in us. And that's why you're busily, Lord, making us more like yourself, that we might be a fitting bride for Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. But it is to be believed. Hallelujah. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary? Okay. Um, this week, Aunt Jane and her husband Fred are celebrating an anniversary on Tuesday, and Mike and Galena are celebrating an anniversary on Thursday. So, happy anniversary, Mike and Galena, on Thursday. Then um, the Dennis's will be celebrating with Rachel on Saturday, Rachel's birthday. And um, Eugenia was on the call, so I wanted to welcome her back. She and her family have been in Russia, and they have just returned back um, this week. In fact, they got back. I think maybe Sunday or Monday, Sunday, I think they got back. Um, then um, Jessica Bueller is still expecting her baby to come. He was supposed to come, or yeah, he was supposed to come on Randy's birthday on Friday, but he was a little late. Caroline slipped in <laughs> before. <laughs> For Jessica's uh, and Dustin's baby. Um, Galena is still praying about going to Russia and when that's to be, to be with her mother. 
and Magda had asked for prayer. Magda's situation with the, the Cedars in Washington, they are in process of establishing new leadership up there, and um, they are hopeful because the man who had the original vision for that ministry um, has a grandson, and the grandson wants to see the ministry continued, so he's praying about stepping into the lead position of that. So Magda would appreciate prayers in regard to that, that ministry and what's to take place, and also the role that she and Peter are to have. They're praying about their uh, business and what to do with that and with Peter's work and what to do with that. So she had specifically, we had prayed on Wednesday night, but to the broader church, she wanted to, um, to put that forth and ask for prayer. And then I want to thank all of you who prayed for uh, my sister Sarah. She did come home on Friday from the nursing home. So um, that's, that's good news. Um, and Martha left, had to leave the call earlier, but she has a, a friend in her church in West Jefferson that's in serious condition with her lungs, I think probably COVID related. And so she had asked for prayer for that, that lady. And I think those uh, Wednesday night, of course, we, we have prayer meeting again, and we would love for you to come. I think those are the announcements of the week, unless I anybody got any additional ones. Welcome back, Carla and Richard. We want to say thank that. Thank you. I thank you very much, and I wanted to thank all of y'all for praying for that trip. Um, we did have a really um, great time with Paul and Adriana and had, um, had a good discussion about um, God and Christianity and hell and <laughs> kinds of things. But um, anyway, but uh, overall it was, it was a really good, great, uh, great um, meeting. And um, um, okay, yeah, I, um, Steve Muir, I don't know, some of y'all know him, but he uh, was very suddenly let go at SAS this week. So um, yeah, so that was a big shocker. We had just gotten back from, um, or they had just gotten back from Arizona and um, found that out when they got back. So now what, Carl? Steve Muir was let go from SAS. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, that just happened. Very unexpected. So anyway, you can be praying for them. Thank you, well, he's been there 20 years or so, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, long, 25. Long. 25 years. Yeah, 20, 25. Yeah. Any other, um, any other thoughts or comments? It's a great message, Roger. I recently read Exodus and it just brought a lot of um, new thoughts uh, to, um, to what I had learned but, um, and enriched what, um, the, the passage. Thank you for digging in. Oops. Sorry, Rachel's trying to call me. <laughs> she wants you to wish her a happy birthday early, Carla. Yeah, yeah we're going to go for a walk. That's why she's yeah. calling me. Okay. <laughs> All right, y'all.
birthday. Okay, I will. And Wendy will be putting something out um, on. I already the, sent the email. Oh, okay. All Thank right. You, yeah. And Henry, are you are you on? Henry, can we see your face? Maybe. We wished Henry a happy birthday last uh, week, but Henry, happy 15th birthday. You had that on Tuesday, right? Would you like us to sing happy birthday to you? Sure. <laughs> okay, before we before we close out, let's sing happy birthday to Henry. All right, y'all ready? You have to, you have to unmute your mics. <laughs> Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Oh, no comment, huh, Henry? <laughs> Those are classic birthday uh, songs. Zoom. I'm still waiting on Greg's. Uh, I have a comment. I'm just scared to say it. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, Henry. We love you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, Randy, would you um, would you dismiss us here this morning? Sure. <coughs> Father God, we thank you for your great mercy that's new to us today. We thank you, Father of lights, that you have sent your son, uh, the light of the world, into our lives to um, ignite faith and to give us understanding we thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you are the light of life. Um, we just ask you to shine into every area of our lives. And if there are shadows or darkness, Lord, that you would dispel them by your grace and mercy. We desire to be a light to the world. Um, a true representation of who you are as you represent the Father. We know that we are... Um, we're kind of like the uh, constructions of the home in Peru where um, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Um, mm -hmm. We're made of clay and um, so unworthy. <clears throat> but God, we thank you that in your great plan and in your desire, as, as Bill has said, you delight in us. You choose us. You call us. Um, you begin a work in us of faith that you've promised to see through to the end. Lord God, may we be found faithful to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay. Good to see all of you. Christina, it's good to see you. And Phoebe made a comment in the chat about every tough time is the best chance to get closer to God. How great is our God? Amen. Maybe we agree with you on that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The good times.
with uh, everybody. I'll check some of this. So we'll look at this. Have a great week, everyone. Phoebe, are you you received the church emails, right? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, just wanted to make sure. I'm sure they'd love some Chinese food, so just go to the link um, okay. where you can sign up to do a meal. Okay. Thank you. All right. I will, yeah, mm -hmm. I will sign it. <laughs> And I, I put their phone numbers in there too. If anybody needs to text them about what time to drop off the food or any details. Uh -huh. And what time is the is the best time? Like in the afternoon or in the morning? Well, I'll double check with Amanda and Viani, but probably any time you want to take the meal over, as long as it's before say six okay. o'clock at night. So, but if there's extra information about that i'll let you know okay thank you wendy okay, did thank you, you wendy did mm -hmm. you put your address in the thing? yeah okay. i did all righty thank you and, i should and, have it in your email by now and at this point uh viani says they're uh expecting that amanda and caroline will be in the hospital at least through tuesday hoping to come home uh on tuesday mm -hmm. i'll check and see if they need a meal for tuesday night that he he said to just start it on wednesday but um i know julie you had asked about bringing something over earlier so if um that's the case i'll let you know or if you i just remember we to. had a conversation with amanda a while back and she said something about if people wanted to bring food, she would be thrilled. But I think maybe we're supposed to put it in a cooler on the porch or something. But I'm sure you'll work out all those details. So we'll know yeah. what to do. Yeah, I'll update the link as I get more details from her. Yeah, I'm sure they haven't had much time to talk about that this morning. I mean, <laughs> probably talking with all of Bianni's family and all of Amanda's family and the medical staff. And, yeah. and I put their mobile numbers in the link. So... Um, if you need more details about something in particular, um, feel free to just text them. Thank you, Wendy. No need, to, no need to come through me for everybody's information. <laughs> just talk to them directly. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Right, you're welcome. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye